This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. How wonderful. So, uh, yeah, it's Mother's Day. I'm not going to talk about Mother's Day a lot, but uh, we'll say there, without mothers, there wouldn't be people. And I love people. I mean, people, we make a lot of messes and problems, but I love us. And so I love all the energy and everything about um, mothers that allow people to be. So I invite you to offer a bow with me for Mother's Day. Thank you all. And I'd also like to um, acknowledge that for, like any holiday, usually... Uh, they celebrate something, but for some people, they're actually quite fraught or painful. So the reasons why Mother's Day can be painful for someone are actually really myriad. Um, and so I'd like to offer a bow to everyone in the world for whom this actually brings up painful or difficult feelings. So to you all, may you be well. <clears throat> okay. So uh, I've been wandering around the country. I've been uh, on the road like Willie Nelson for uh, about three weeks. And I have seen a lot of wonderful country and met a lot of people. And what I've been doing is talking about mindfulness and intimacy because these are things that I deeply value. So um, I am aware that for people who are really into Zen, the word mindfulness now sometimes creates an aversive feeling. Like, oh, God, we got to talk about mindfulness now? I thought that was just what they did, you know, like in, uh, in Time magazine. Anyway, I still think mindfulness has value and is worth talking about. I'm going to, just to give you a sense of how I'm framing mindfulness and intimacy here, read you the first paragraph of the, first, the, the chapter on mindfulness and then the mind, chapter on intimacy. Mindfulness is being aware of things in a way that promotes well-being. To practice mindfulness is to choose some aspect of our experience and focus attention there in a sustained way. There is discernment in mindfulness, but it is non-judgmental. It is kind. It allows the mind to rest in the phenomena of the present moment and take a break from creating a relentless stream of imaginations about the future, reviews of the past, or judgments of the present. Our awareness is one of the most amazing and powerful things we have as human beings. Rather than taking it for granted and allowing it to focus wherever the mind's habits choose, with mindfulness we can better focus awareness on things that are truly beneficial. Intimacy, in its simplest definition, means close familiarity and friendship. Words, however, have power and meaning beyond their definitions. No matter what the dictionary says, some words evoke very different meanings or feelings to different people. To some folks, the word religion evokes inspiration, warmth, and wonder. To others, constriction and closed-mindedness. I tend to find both categories of people in Zen communities. (laughs) Intimacy is a word a bit like this. It can evoke feelings of connection and safety, But for some people, it's pretty scary or stickily sentimental. And then there are the folks who think it just means sex. If this is why you came here today, 
you are going to be disappointed. Here I will be pointing towards a way of understanding and experiencing the word intimacy that fosters compassion, calm, and joyful action. I use intimacy here as we often use it in Zen discourse. It's about harmony between autonomy and interdependence. In intimacy, we are individuals who are connected, and we are also one undivided whole. We can develop both healthy boundaries and healthy boundarylessness. So the way uh, I talk about mindfulness is pretty conventional. It's just based in study and practice with the earliest texts on mindfulness from uh, the Pali Canon, particularly the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra. Um, the way I talk about intimacy may seem a little less conventional, and this is in part because everyone's feeling about what intimacy means is so various. Uh, I would say if we look at Zen discourse and the way the word intimacy is used, um, we could say intimacy is how things are, or reality is intimacy. Uh, probably the easiest way to access this way of looking at things is uh, from a Mahayana Buddhist perspective. Um, all conditions from the entire universe arrive to create any particular thing, so or create the appearance of uh there being a thing. So in this moment, the entire universe has arrived so that you can have this moment of experience that you're feeling these bodily sensations and seeing this visual field and hearing these sounds uh, and interpreting these meanings. Wow, so everything came together for that to happen. And in this moment, because you are part of the phenomenal world, you're actually co-creating the whole thing too. So the whole thing is dependent on the way you are participating in this co-creative uh, undertaking. <clears throat> so I don't know how anything could be more intimate, how it could be more close or familiar than everything entirely always depending on everything else. That sounds about as intimate as things could possibly be. So normally we don't really experience reality in this way. So, uh, I will argue that those times where we feel, we might describe ourselves as feeling intimate, where we feel uh, our sense of alienation quiet and our sense of connection uh, more full, what's happening is we are just getting a little closer to seeing things the way they really are, to seeing reality. <clears throat> So uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is that we dwell in an amazing time, the time of the mindfulness movement. Wow, what's happening? You could have skipped coming here this morning and just gotten a mindful coloring book at the grocery store. Wouldn't that have been great? Maybe that would have been enough. Or you could just get the Time Magazine mindfulness supplement that is currently available at your grocery store. Or you could read any of the countless wellness articles that say you should do this, that, and this. And by the way, you should also practice mindfulness or meditation or practice these things which are identical to mindfulness, but we're not calling that. So it's really wild. And, you know, I'll just say 40, 50 years ago, people thought yoga was pretty weird. It was like a weird thing. You'd laugh about people who did it. And now there are a dozen yoga studios I can walk to from my house. So I have no idea where, whether mindfulness will have been like a weird little trendy thing, 
or if we will look up in 50 years and it will be a pervasive uh, part of the culture of this country. We just don't know. But it's happening. It's pretty clear that something is happening. And you might think, ah, oh, yeah, I don't care. I'm a Zen person. I'm doing something way beyond that. So if that's you, well, that's cool. But actually, because we're intimate, you can't not be a part of it. That's what happens with intimacy. You can never not be a part of anything, which is, can be a little bit um, daunting, I'll admit. So anyway, being a part of this mindfulness thing that's happening is, uh, it's okay. You know, I, I participate. I provide secular mindfulness training. Um, mostly in the context of working with uh, addicts and alcoholics in recovery from addiction, I myself being uh, a person in that category, and, uh, or uh, with police training. It's the other place I do a fair amount of secular mindfulness training. And I hope that it is valuable. But there are many really good um, and valid critiques of uh, the way mindfulness is being appropriated into American culture uh, having been historically embedded within the Buddhist tradition and with the Buddhist practice. So there's lots of critiques. They're all really good, and we could like talk about those for a few days. But I'll just be brief and talk about the one which I'm principally responding to by um, encouraging people to pair mindfulness with intimacy. So um, you might go to your job. Maybe you're the person at the job. I have been the person at the job where the people go there and they're required by their job to do mindfulness training. Like that's how it is with the police because I can guarantee you most of them wouldn't do it <laughs> if the chief didn't require it. So you might go to your job and you're required to do mindfulness training and, and you know they might be sitting around developing this program because they're like, oh, if we do mindfulness training, we'll be more productive. Mm. You know what? I really don't want to help people be more productive. Sorry. Um, and maybe I'll explain why that is in a minute. But the, the other thing is, basically, there are some ways that mindfulness is being taught now where we can start to see what's happening is people are being trained to be able to accept completely uh, how things are. And I am sitting here telling you I am absolutely not interested in people accepting everything how it is. Um, so we exist in intimacy with many, many extremely harmful systems. As people living in the United States, we're in a country that has always been characterized, including now, by white supremacy and patriarchy, um, where uh, homophobia and transphobia are endemic, where anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are on the rise, where we have an economic system that is massively harmful to many, many people, millions and millions of people. And where the way we are consuming and producing things is killing and destroying our family, our animal family. Species are dying off forever. Uh, all kinds of animals, trees, are, that's our family, our relatives. So if what mindfulness does is it helps people to be more relaxed and calm in reproducing that situation, I don't think that's helping. And it goes counter to what mindfulness was intended to do, which was liberate everyone, everywhere from suffering, to break the wheel, 
to break the wheel. So mindfulness has traditionally, and this gets uh, complex if you really want to get into the dharma of it, but it's been paired with ideas of connection and intimacy, always. So I'm interested in promoting a view of this where people recognize that it, it, they open up to the reality of these things and realize their liberative energy. Because the basic news of Buddhism, I would say the basic underlying message is you have liberative agency if you have consciousness. The Four Noble Truths says suffering is vast and you can do something about it. No pressure. <laughs> but the nice thing is then the invitation. What is the thing to do about it? Slow down and look at how things are right now. Look at how things are right now. So uh, the other thing, other little critique of, of the current mindfulness climate is the degree to which it's, it's pointing people towards like uh, doing it alone. So uh, there's probably someone here who's designed an app for meditation, given where I'm sitting. <laughs> so apps are wonderful, but I go to a lot of places to provide training and people are like, I already do this. I just sit in my room with my app and it's cool. It is helping them. I can hear them talk about it, but this has been, mindfulness has been embedded in the idea of Sangha and community. People say, oh, Zen emphasizes individual meditation practice. I can't understand how they could possibly think that because the practice is to sit in a room with other people. It's a group. We do it together. We come together. And you, intimacy, intimacy, awareness or realization of intimacy is available in any moment. But as psychologically conditioned beings, we find it and we recognize it by investigating different types of relationships that we actually have with people and with groups, but also with uh, floors and walls, which are good too. We're still in relationship. Thank you, Wall. Wall sat with us all morning, was your friend and companion as you practiced Zazen. I had to look at the floor because I was a teacher. It's a nice floor. Thank you. So, uh, so this, uh, so I'm thinking about mindfulness here. Uh, I, I think of mindfulness as a object-based meditation. So mindfulness as elucidated in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra, it says that we methodically develop awareness of specific elements of experience, starting with the body, first with the breath, then the whole body, then the bodily postures. Uh, then there's uh, some stuff with death, which is a little bit complicated how it fits in. Then we go on and we start to notice uh, the um, valence of our experience of how we're, our mind is saying, oh, this is bad, this is good. And we start to notice, then I want to be aware of whether I'm experiencing desire, aversion, whether I'm experiencing restlessness or slothfulness, torpor. So there's all these little categories and the idea is you methodically develop awareness of them. So we pick elements out of the flux of reality and we say, this is the object I'm focusing on. So uh, now that's an early Buddhist, you know, it's the emphasis in Theravadan or Vipassana or insight type practice. So in, in Mahayana literature, you see a direct reaction to this whole way of doing things. So you don't see the word mindfulness very often at all in Mahayana texts. It's left out of the main path system. So if you think, of the Eightfold Path is the principal path model or uh, practice model for early Buddhism, mindfulness is there. 
Then they stop talking about the Eightfold Path so much in Mahayana literature and you get the six paramitas, which does not have mindfulness. Why is this? Because Mahayana literature is like this whole idea of like cutting up reality into little pieces to be observed is the whole problem. The whole problem is we're not realizing the intimacy that's here because our mind always cuts everything up. So why on earth will we make a practice that chops everything up into these individual pieces? Oh, this is my body separate from the world. It's not. This is my feeling. And why do all this cutting up and just exacerbate the whole problem? Why not leap immediately right now into the intimacy that is how things are? You don't even have to leap into it because you can't not be it. Here we are. So at this point in the talk, I think a lot of Zen people are like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Because <laughs> that's why we're doing Zen. This is the style and the, the way of thinking about things that maybe speaks to our heart. But I actually think that the mindfulness modality of using the mind's discerning capacity paired with the Mahayana emphasis on leaping into non-duality as it is, is more powerful than doing one or the other. And this is not an idea that I uh, invented. This is the basic model of practice upheld by my favorite Dharma teacher of all time, Vasubandhu. So Vasubandhu is a Yogacara teacher. It's about 1,500 years ago. And he, um, one of the main things that uh, I see in his teaching is this idea that both of these practices are more powerful together than separate. Uh, in part, he was trying to deal with the fact that it's like... Uh, People from different Buddhist schools like to argue with each other and say they're better than each other. I don't think this is very helpful. Um, but anyway, uh, so he wanted to say, look, it all works together. He made a coherent system. And I think this is really wonderful. And I like to go around trying to carry forward Vasubandhu's vision. So... Mm, oh, and I should say... Uh, you know, I was talking about just leaping into, well, why leap? Why not just sit? So I don't know if you're familiar with the term just sitting or shikantaza, which are uh, central to Soto Zen teaching. So this is what you, we call objectless meditation. So this is a direct response to object-based mindfulness meditation. So in objectless meditation, you don't pick any specific thing to objectify or pay attention to. There's no specific object of meditation and there's no object you're trying to attain. So you're free from objects, although our minds tend to produce a lot of them anyway. But the practice itself is objectless. Um, so, and this is a wonderful meditation practice I invite everyone to do. Um, <clears throat> so, um, people's uh, capacity to realize intimacy is personal and state-dependent. So personal means it's different for everybody, and state-dependent means it, it depends on the conditions that are here. So, uh, for example, to I take the example of uh, sex, sexual relation, like the act of having sex with two people. There could be more people, I guess. Um, most commonly, two people. So this can be uh, a, an experience of profound intimacy. So people can experience a, an enormous sense of connection and dissolution 
of their focus on this separate self and open up into something very beautiful uh, when they're engaged in sexual activity. But sex can also be a profoundly and deeply alienating experience for people on some occasions. And it can be a whole range of these things. <clears throat> so likewise, uh, I am like a kind of a barefoot hippie type of a guy. So uh, like I've been traveling around the country for three weeks, talking about mindfulness and intimacy at various places. And if I have a night off, I immediately drive into the woods and put up my tent and go running off. Well, actually, there are no woods in the desert. I go run around in the desert when that's where I am. And I just go outside and I look at the plants and the animals doing their life. I was just hanging out with some wild turkeys up on the ridge this morning. I was hanging out with them and feeling. I just feel my kinship. I feel all those chattery personal needs quiet down and I open up into a sense of connection. I feel very intimate with the world in that environment. And uh, you know, this is a lot of people will be like, yeah. You ever met someone who's like, yeah, I just go in the woods. The woods is my church. I've heard multiple people, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I just, the woods is my church. Yeah, people feel this. On the other hand, not everyone does. As I left Minnesota, I gave this talk, like I started this trip by giving a talk at my home temple. And uh, my friend Wayne came up afterwards and he said, uh, hmm, nature's all right, I guess. I, you know, sometimes my wife makes me go on a nature walk. But intimacy, really? So he doesn't feel this at all. He goes out in nature, it's kind of dirty. You know, Meh. who needs it? So you might be like that. Who knows? How about family? Some people, they're like, oh, when I get within the bosom of my family, I feel so connected. And I feel like just a part of this whole and my energy naturally flows to support everybody and I feel naturally supported. And then there are maybe some people who don't feel this way. In fact, when I was in Santa Barbara, someone said, wait a minute, that's not really possible, is it? So, so people are various. It's personal and it's state dependent. <clears throat> so being from Minnesota, like a few of my friends here, I would like to now talk to you about Prince. That seems like a really good idea. I'd just like to tell you that my friend Ayo Yatunde has founded an academic journal called The Theology of Prince. So it turns out I need to get a PhD just so I can do stuff like that. That is never going to happen. Anyway, so, uh, so Prince. Now, you could watch Prince play music. And if you watch Prince play music, you would see a person um, become totally absorbed in the activity of creating the sounds and moving the body in the way that that was happening. Um, just a total immersion in activity. And there's like a, a sense that you would have of his intimacy with that completeness. And then it, you could go like to a place where people were watching this happen, thousands of people, and they would be called into this. People would be opening up into this vast sense of connection. 
And, you know, you'd see all these people and they'd have their hands in the air and they'd be saying, purple rain, purple rain. And no one in that room knew what purple rain meant. No one does. That's probably one of the reasons why it helps people open up. Because it was just like a mystery. What is even happening here? There's this sound and this image. God, people be profoundly spiritual. <clears throat> so a person can not only enter in and, and touch or realize intimacy, but they can help other people to do it. And this is a natural capacity of all people that everyone in this room has, and everyone does to some extent. <clears throat> Now, on the other hand, Prince died alone in an elevator of a drug overdose at the age of 58. And this shows us something very true about human beings, is that our, that capacity for realizing intimacy is, uh, it is, it comes in a constellation. There are parts of us, where, places where we're good at it and places where it doesn't come naturally or we don't feel it. And this example is extreme, but for all of us, there are places where we are wounded, where we, the patterns of wounding cause us to engage in behaviors that are harmful. This is samsara. And the basic idea I come from is the fundamentally Buddhist one, which is although we are conditioned by huge amounts of karma, of past stuff, we have agency. So that means we can look into those places where intimacy is hard for us to realize, where our woundedness is what drives us, and we can transform. We can transform. So uh, one of the reasons I bring up Prince here, even though it's kind of an extreme example, beyond wanting to sing Purple Rain in a Zendo, which might have been fundamental. Um, but the second reason is that, uh, is that we are part of a tradition, as sitting here in a Soto Zen Center, where we, um, we, cre we create communally people who manifest this ability to realize intimacy deeply. I'd argue this is the principal task of Zen teachers, is to be able to realize interdependence. And not only that, they are sometimes really good at helping other people open up into that. You find very inspiring teachers who help people transform themselves so they realize their intimacy with the world. And uh, it's really wonderful, and I'm really grateful for all my teachers. But Time and time again, we have seen people with an amazing capacity to do this who are also very wounded and very patterned in parts of their life to do things that are really harmful. In particular, we have seen many amazingly effective teachers who have abused their power, men uh, who have abused their power to sexually exploit women. But I will say that, uh, although I tend to emphasize that when talking about this, as I've been traveling around after numerous talks, people have come up and said, I have personal experience and it's not just men and it's not just sex. So 
people can be really wonderful, but have parts of themselves that are really not functioning all that helpfully. So um, recognizing this and transforming it is, uh, is work that seems to be ongoing in our country, and I'm really happy, and I think we should all jump in and do it. And I think we can create a Buddhist culture in, in the United States where at least there is much less of this harm being done. And there's all, that will be a project with all kinds of parts. But in the context of this talk, what I'll say, one of the parts that can be there is for schools that radically emphasize non-dualism, or what I'm calling intimacy, to incorporate mindfulness practice. Because mindfulness practice reminds us that I should, I should be aware when lust arises in me and just be able to hold it in awareness. Or when aversion arises in me. Um, or when, uh, just to use the list that Vasubandhu makes, when arrogance arises in me, to be like, ah, I am sensitive to this particular phenomena and I watch for it. And when it comes up, I apply mindfulness. <clears throat> so I'm going to uh, read you, I'm going to do a, a three little readings here. Not back to back. First one, I'm going to read from a chapter called Heart. This book is kind of divided. Well, it's not kind of divided. It's divided into just basic aspects of our life and then about how we can cultivate mindfulness and intimacy with and in those. So things like body, mind, heart, family, romance, sex, teachers, community, ritual, nature. You get the idea. This is a chapter called Heart. Have you ever seen someone laughing in the rain? Or someone stoop-shouldered shuffling along on a green and sunny day? Perhaps in a time of crisis, you've seen someone respond with resolve and energy, and someone else collapse into fear or despair. Maybe someone you know gets testy, and then you know it's best to leave them alone. When a loved one is dying, sometimes people are overwhelmed with pain and can barely take care of their basic needs. And sometimes they leap into frantic action to avoid their feelings. And at other times, they only know one thing, profound, all-encompassing acceptance and love. I've seen all this in others and in myself as well. One of the clearest insights of my years of meditation is how powerfully my emotions color my experience, my perception of the world. When I am angry, I feel isolated and I feel the need to control, the need for swift action. When sad, I feel alone and like there's nothing worth doing, like staying in bed. When I am afraid, I feel vulnerable, like I have to get away. When I am ashamed, I feel abandoned, like everything is pointless and that I'm fundamentally flawed. When I feel intimacy with people in my environment, on the other hand, I feel connected, I trust what's happening, and I am patient and engaged. Afflictive emotions are the reason the practice of mindfulness exists and why the kind of intimacy this book is about arose as central to Buddhist thought. Buddhism is, at its root, a set of practices and ideas designed to free human beings from afflictive emotion. So when I was uh, studying Vasubandhu's 30 Verses on Consciousness Only, which was a lengthy project, uh, this is this text that integrates mindfulness with non-dual thinking. And, uh, in about one-third of the way through, there's these long lists. 
So he presents a model of consciousness, and then he makes this long list of phenomena. He's like, these are the phenomena. And I looked at those lists, and I thought, oh, Lord, help me. I don't like lists. And uh, I'll just tell you that a friend of mine from the Bay Area had done a translation of the 30 verses. And when she heard I was going to translate it, she said, I've done one already. I said, oh, please send it. And when it came to the lists, it just said, there's a list here. And then it left the whole section blank. (laughs) She just didn't want to deal with lists. So this is a kind of a characteristic Zen (laughs) attitude, I think. But anyway, uh, I looked at those lists and I was like, well, I'm going to have to find something to do with them. And after a while, I had a blinding flash of the obvious because about 40 of the 55 elements were emotional. And I thought, perhaps Vasubandhu thinks we should pay attention to what is happening in our emotional lives. And then uh, reviewing the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra, which is pretty complex. There's a lot of different elements. If you kind of shake it out or you put it in a sifter, you'll see all these things that are affective or emotional fall out of it as things that we should be attentive to. Things like desire, aversion, uh, tranquility, energy, rapture, torpor, uh, slothfulness. Oh, those are the same thing. Whatever. Anyway, so now you may or may not want to memorize these lists and be carefully attentive to their arising. So that's, you don't have to. But I just really do encourage everybody to be more and more attentive to what is the emotional energy in any given moment. And I've never met a person so far who I thought was too aware of this. Um, I'll just make a distinction. I'm not talking about thinking about your feelings which you can definitely do too much. I'm talking about just knowing them as feeling states. And uh, just to be clear, like when you're sitting sazen, is it not already the case that the birds, all these birds that you weren't even there, it's not like they came into being because you're doing sazen. They've been there and you become aware. You become aware of the, this, how amazing the floor is. This is normally ignored. You become aware of the body. And you can become aware of your feelings. But you won't necessarily do so. So this is the thing is people may people do Zazen for a long time and somehow that just never comes into their awareness. So sometimes it takes a little bit of like, oh yes, this is part of my experience I want to know. It's like you might be like, you heard a talk by Suzuki Roshi about hearing birds, and then you're like, ah, I'm going to hear all the birds, everyone. So, your heart, know what's happening. And you don't have to do anything to it. That's the beauty of awareness. So on the one hand, probably obvious to everyone here that if you know what your feeling is, you're less likely to impulsively act motivated by it. And this makes a big difference in those moments when you're about to say something unkind to your loved one, or whatever. But from, I'll just get a little more technical from a Yogacara karma theory perspective. Uh, being mindful of emotions is one of the most powerful things you can possibly do if you want the world to be liberated from suffering. Because uh, conditions arise, karmic conditions arise to produce a feeling state. So at some point, somebody or somewhere, there was irritation, for example. And that planted a seed. I'm putting my hand back here like that's the past, which doesn't make sense, but whatever. So back back here in the past, someone was irritated. So a seed has been planted in consciousness for irritation to occur. 
it will bear fruit. So suddenly there you are and there's irritation. Now, usually we're not intimately aware of the feeling state of irritation itself. It happens, but it kind of happens cloaked by all this thinking, you know, or just like that person is stupid, for example, um, or all these cars should move out of my way, whatever it is. So the seed that uh, was planted in the past bears fruit and its energy is exhausted, but because we're not attentive, what happens with our consciousness is it just plants another similar seed. So someday down the road, that feeling will recur. And it will probably recur for us, but we're part of the universe in intimacy. So all we know is it will recur. Someone will experience the suffering of that irritation. You want to call it you or someone else? It's all the same to me. So, on the other hand, if we can have direct awareness of the feeling state itself, the former conditioning exhausts its energy in producing this, for example, irritation, could be any feeling. And then, because we're aware of it, it doesn't just plant a similar seed. It just, it's exhausted, and we plant a seed. And what's the seed we're planting? Awareness. Just seeing. And so someday down the road, some being will bear the fruit of this planting a seed of awareness, and there'll be just a little more awareness in the world. <clears throat> and this awareness should be one of compassion. But that's all compassion is, to just see suffering as it is. So I'll say it's compassionate because maybe you don't notice that. But if we see feelings with our whole being, that's all compassion is. <clears throat> Wisdom and compassion. Sometimes they say two things. One thing, I think, like this. So, uh, I'm going to uh, read you another little section here. And this is, uh, as I was trying to decide what parts of this book to read, because I'm like, I'm going to go around the country talking about this stuff. What should I read? That's how do you decide? So I decided to read this because it's about someone that I love and who I admire and I find very inspiring. So, Tomoe Katagiri is, as far as I know, the first person to teach the sewing of Zen, Soto Zen robes in the United States. Feel free to correct me. Um, but I've been, I've been, uh, I've checked with a lot of people. Anyway, so uh, Dainin Katagiri and Tomoe, Dainin was her husband, um, he moved to the United States to assist Shunryu Suzuki, as did Kobanchino in the 60s at San Francisco Zen Center. And then a bunch of Minnesotans convinced Katagiri to move to Minnesota, which if he'd known what winter was like, never would have happened, but never mind. Um, so, and they founded Minnesota Zen Meditation Center where I still practice and teach most of the year. And uh, Dainin Katagiri died about 25 years ago and Tomoe still lives. And Tomoe is no longer teaching sewing. She just retired a few years ago because her eyesight does not allow her to see the stitches. But she's still quite wonderful. And uh, if you're interested in sewing practice, I do invite you to... I wrote a profile of Tomoe for a Tricycle magazine a few years ago. And she gets to present her teaching in that article. And a lot, I interviewed many people who studied with her. And I, I think it's uh, quite an inspiring set of words. Anyway, this chapter is called Teachers. Tomoe Katagiri taught me well, mostly by staying by my side and quietly pouring her energy into what we were doing together. 
Tomoe-san helped bring the art of sewing Zen monks' robes from Japan to the United States, and she was my teacher in sewing the robes that symbolized my ordination. She gave me precise instruction on the technical aspects of sewing, with which I am far from adept. But to me, her real teaching lay in her embodiment of patience, attention to the present moment, and quiet, warm intimacy. It was not uncommon as we worked side by side for us to be silent for an hour at a time to support wholehearted focus on each stitch. After the entire robe is sewn, which took me about a year, it is carefully ironed and folded precisely. Ironed and folded like origami. I frequently found the sewing process frustrating. This is a massive understatement. <clears throat> but she just calmly stitched away beside me. I recall the moment when I finished the final stitch, a moment I had been waiting for. I said, Tomoy, I finished the robe. I was ready for a birthday cake or maybe some fireworks. She put down her sewing and moved to stand up as she said, I'll turn on the iron. <laughs> Those who have sewn are laughing. <laughs> I don't think she was consciously teaching me, but she brought me right back to what was in front of me. She modeled not living for some other time when the current task, the current manifestation of life is done. She hadn't been waiting for me to finish, and she realized nothing is ever really finished. Life goes on. All things connect. She took care of the world by focusing on the life at hand, and that was teaching enough for me. <clears throat> so uh, a while back, I was uh, teaching at a treatment center in Minnesota called Hazelden, a chemical dependency rehabilitation center uh, for addicts and alcoholics. And... Uh, this place has like residential programs and retreats. And then it just has this uh, offering on Sundays where people can come from the region. And, you know, people in recovery from addiction, they hang out together. Because community is a powerful means of liberation. Ooh, did I quote you already from Audre Lorde, the great uh, African-American feminist, essayist, and poet who once said, Without community, there is no liberation. Without community, there is no liberation. If you can be free of aversion and desire, those two poisons, maybe your mindfulness practice makes you just, I don't have any of that. But if you're still caught by the delusion that you can be separate, that your, your freedom can come without everyone coming along, you're totally caught in samsara. This is a practice of liberating everyone. They put, I found out this is a self-help book. Now, I really wish it was in the liberating all beings from suffering forever section, but they don't have that yet. But I think Mahayana people can make something in this country where maybe you go to the bookstore and it's like, here's the liberating all beings from suffering forever section. Get to work. Anyway, I got super distracted. So there I am at Hazelden, teaching a very introductory mindfulness thing for the wider community. Just... Here's how to do mindfulness of body, and here's how it can be conducive and beneficial to recovery from addiction. An hour-long thing. It was really nice, fun. So at the end, this woman raised her hand up, and I said yes, and she said, thank you very much. That was just wonderful. 
I really appreciate doing this because I am a therapist and I teach mindfulness to my clients all the time, but I've never practiced or had any training. Wow. Wow. This is happening, everybody. This is a real thing. And this might be like, uh, this is the most extreme example of this. That's why I'm using it in this talk. But actually, I see this kind of thing all the time. The way mindfulness is being appropriated into our culture is like really fast and really wild. And on the one hand, how hard is it to say, just know you're breathing right now? Very simple. On the other hand, I come from a tradition where the expectation is if you're teaching this stuff, you have spent thousands of hours practicing meditation, immersing yourself in community, in relationship with a teacher, uh, in the teachings. So I don't know what's going to happen, and uh, I don't really have a plan. But actually, it's just worth knowing this is happening, having a look at it, and realizing whether you want to be a part of it or not, you are. Because that's how intimacy works. You can't actually break the underlying bond. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to read one more little section here, and then I'll wrap up. And uh, this is... Uh, this is a chapter called The Ones We Don't Know. <laughs> Many old Buddhist teachings say that seeing our interdependence is seeing truth, and not seeing it is ignorance. Ignorance basically means not knowing. If you think about all the things you don't know, how many pins are in your pincushion? How many stars in the sky? How many people laughing within a mile of you? And how many crying? How things are for each of the approximately 40 trillion bacteria living as part of your body? Where you left your umbrella? What's going on in Yemen right now or on Mars? You get the idea. We're pretty ignorant. It's all right. Let's start there. Let's just take a moment to be intimate with the vastness of our ignorance, like a great ocean of not knowing. Do you know what each of the billions of fish in the sea are experiencing right now? Intimacy with this not knowing situation can open the door for a deeper sense of our interdependence and connection to what we can't know but are already a part of. Usually we ignore what we don't know. The human mind picks out a tiny infinitesimal corner of reality and tries to figure it out and then spends a lot of time feeling like it's got a handle on things. Really, it's ignoring infinite things to give itself a tenuous sense of security in the vastness of this wild, unfurling world. If we practice mindfulness of our body, mind, and heart, we can begin to see the process by which the mind constructs this small picture of the world. We see that our awareness moves between a broad, spacious sense and a constricted, narrow view based on how our body, mind, and heart are interacting. If we practice objectless meditation, like shikantaza, the mind's categorizing slows, and we tend to actually experience gaps in the mind's tendency to actively ignore most of what is happening. We find ourselves occasionally resting in non-differentiated awareness. While we will always remain in a kind of ignorance about the infinite aspects of the universe, we can diminish the degree to which we actively though generally unconsciously ignore things. 
This is the path by which we begin to see interdependence, to see a world that is not made of things to judge, control, and manipulate, but a world with which we are intimate and to which we can offer our best effort. Uh, thank you. And uh, having said many things, uh, I'm interested in seeing if other people would say things. That is to say, questions or answers. Yes. Grace and surrender. Hmm. Well, you know, I come from a, a worldview framed by Buddhist thought and practice. A lot of other kinds of thought, too. But, you know, grace, what is the idea that there's something fundamentally good that upholds us? And uh, Buddhism is a little bit, um, there's a little ambivalence on this, but basically everything is upholding us. And... Buddha is that that is true, is the fact that that is true. So when Buddha, from a Mahayana perspective, when Buddha attained realization, what happened was he realized that he was intimate with everything, which was already true. So uh, we do practices and we use language to remind ourselves that we're already intimately supported by everything. And that feels like grace to me. Um, and surrender... Um, I would speak from the side of uh, trusting that. So one of the fundamental ways of understanding faith in the Mahayana is, is affective. So it's not faith that's like an idea about how things are, but it's actually just trusting that this moment is okay. And we cultivate that trust through practice. So those are a couple ideas. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, thinking of it in terms of addiction, what you say makes a lot of sense. That somehow if you're trying to control it and you're trying to get a handle on something, it's different than if you sort of let go and there's something that will support you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, addiction, uh, I think, is fundamentally about control. Even if what you're trying to do is be really out of control, what happens, you're trying to get away from Real, your responsibility. You're trying to control yourself by having a release from your responsibility to be a part of the world. It has to do with shame. So no matter what, it comes down to control, I think. And actually, I would say this is the simplest way to recognize if you're feeling or not realizing intimacy, the degree to which your mind is focused on controlling what it believes to be external phenomenon or internal ones. Control. Look for that and see if you can put it down. Um, first of all, thank you for your book, Vastubandhu um, Yogakara. I read that book and it was, was great. Thank you. Um, and a question I had is about just sitting. You said um, that in, when you sit with no object and just sit, isn't the idea of just sitting an object? Yeah, so it, it's, a, it, it's a great point. So the thing is, if you use language, there's an object. Because language fundamentally has to divide. So there's no way to talk about it without having something end up being pulled out. 
So in, uh, in um, like the language of Dogen or Soto Zen, we sort of pull sitting out of reality to say this is where objectless occurs just because you have to say something, as, as Katagiri would say. Uh, Prajnaparamita literature calls it Prajnaparamita. Um, so basically, if we're using words, there's going to be objectification. But we, in, in the Mahayana tradition, we, since we're talking, we try and find a way to talk that might port, point people towards realizing um, the objectless that, that is already here. So uh, initially in the talk, you gave a definition of uh, mindfulness to be engaged in an activity without uh, drawing vivid images of the future, of the review of the past, or judgment, but instead have kindness. So um, isn't choosing isn't choosing to reject these things and choosing kindness, isn't that also kind of judgment? Um, and, and if you could also, so kindness is a word but then if you could talk more about, you know, like what is the state that you're talking about when you say mindfulness with mm. kindness and not all of those things. Yeah, so it becomes like a, there's kind of a semantic challenge. So semantic just means like the way we feel about certain words. So I use discernment, but not judgment. So for many people, the judgment or judgmental has the um, the attached to it is the, the valence or the idea of a kind of a harshness or a desire to expel. So to be judgmental is to, you know, that'd be like, I'm, I think I'm better than you. That's a judgmental thing. Discernment has less of that. So it's more just like seeing that things are discrete or different things. So the flavor of the activity is to just bring into awareness without any of this uh, negative judging. So to be able to say, I am here is like anger. And it's, oh, I'm just here with it. With, so then I'm trying to indicate with the way I talk what the flavor of the awareness is. But it's one that's just like, I'm here for you. Instead of being like, I'm here for you, but I'll be here for you more when you're done being like that. So it's really just presence. I think that is kind. My experience is when people can be just present with me, no matter how I am, that is one of the kindest things they can do for me. So th it's like uh, there is a, there's an affect to it. Yeah, and in the talk you also talked about um, relationships between people and having a sense of boundaries, but also intimacy without boundarylessness. Uh, so what did you mean by that boundarylessness? Boundarylessness, well... Non-dualism as the quality of boundarylessness, or we say emptiness, spaciousness, all those terms are just, they're very similar in what they're pointing towards. A thing where they're, we're recognizing that there actually aren't discrete things that are separate. There's only some dynamicness. Um, but the thing is, people who really, people will hear that and they'll be like, sweet, that's what I want. That sounds really mystical. They'll read mystical interview, inter, literature and be like, I'm just going to jump into that. And then what happens is they forget that they need to have personal boundaries, that they need to be able to recognize that it's like, oh, I have this feeling and I need to take care of it. I need to be responsible for my actions. So by holding them in a polarity between boundaried and boundaryless, it's a way of developing both sides of a healthy psychology. Yes, and but from a practical point of view, um, 
does one express that? Like you said, in relationships, there's this um, sense of boundarylessness and, and, and boundaries. So you're very familiar with creating boundaries and, and all of that. But like from a non-dualistic perspective or boundarylessness, like could you give an example of how someone could express that in a relationship? <coughs> One of the easiest ways to get to it is just think about attitudinally. So say you're, you're in a relationship that is challenging. There's someone that in your family or your job or in the political sphere with whom your, your relationship is challenging. To, on one level, you're recognizing that they are not an object which can be controlled and that they're not something to be manipulated. So recognizing that you're in one boat together. Uh, as, as Dr. King used to say, we're all in the same boat now. But recognize that you have agency. That's the boundary position, is that I can do something. So I can do something liberative, but it's not about controlling you. So the boundary is to come back to the choice, the power of choice or agency, and the boundaryless is to recognize that it's not about manipulating an external object, but about offering something into this relational sphere. So I want to uh, let some other people, yeah. Or in the spirit of L3 boundaries and L3 boundarylessness, I want to acknowledge that the lunch bell is gone. Ah, uh, yes. And I, I, I'm really enjoying our discussion, and I don't want to <laughs> cut it short, so, so I'll leave it up to you to that. Yeah, I, gave, I had a little talk with Craig, so I think we probably have like one more question here, and if, if anyone has one. Or maybe we have, the question is, where's lunch? <clears throat> yes. Does mindfulness help the police in their situations, their daily situations? I hope so. Uh, I have talked to some who think so, and there are some who really don't like doing the training at all. <laughs> Not surprisingly, you know. Um, but th there are definitely some who feel like it helps them to be more, um, more aware of what's going on with them so they're less impulsive and more aware of the people they're with so they recognize that those people are suffering. Mm -hmm. Police encounter people on a daily basis in tremendous, tremendously stressful environments. So uh, it helps them to uh, recognize the boundary of their choice, but recognize they are actually in a relationship and it's not just about controlling that person. I have, I've talked to some who've had that come to them. So wonderful to be with you all. Thank you so much for practicing. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.